Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new purpose and possibilities. Every week we meet for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us they're just some things you don't talk about. But not at this table. We live beyond all judgment and beyond the wreckage. So, each week we start right where we are. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, should you miss us? No worries. I know that's date night. We have great breaking news. We are migrating our content to be archived as well as on YouTube to a podcast platform. You stay tuned with all the updates, and I'll let you know when you can just hit a button, and there we are. Thank you for those of you who reach out to me, give me helpful hints. And for those of you who think you might want to, you can email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing the Frankly Speaking theme and for creatively naming it, I'm listening. This this May, we celebrate the 20th month of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. We have featured over 118 guests. We've heard stories that inspired, stories that taught us new things, stories that made us want to know more. Yes, we continue to build our virtual community across cultures and generations through our experiences. So how are we doing? Are things relevant? Are they helpful? Are they inspiring? Can you feel the power of the show's authenticity and vulnerability? Great us. Talk to me. You have my email now, so I'm going to be looking to hear from you. We are so excited that we are now going to have a better way to distribute our experiences that we are going through in terms of rebirth, rejuvenation, renewal, resurrection, and regrowth. The best thing about it, though, is that we're doing it together. And what better way to celebrate our forward progress than to meet and greet new phenomenal listeners who are newly sitting at our virtual table. 
We're going to walk into their stories with them and listen beyond their words with compassion and love. After all, beyond our words is where we live. That's where our life speaks. Last week, we initiated Frankly Speaking with Tyra, excuse me, last year, we initiated Frankly Speaking with Tyra G with a Get Acquainted theme entitled, This Is Us. It seemed appropriate after 118 guests that it's time for us to do a do again. Our theme this month, therefore, is This Is Us, Chapter 2. Now, you all know I begin each show by creating a common thought space for our time together. This way we can assume that we're on some level where we're beginning the journey for the hour together. The words of Glennon Doyle Melton give us the gift of her words today. And I quote, We're not often permitted to tell the truth in everyday life. There's a small set of words and reactions and pleasantries that we're allowed to say, like, I'm fine, and you? But we are not supposed to say much of anything else, especially what we're really doing and how we're really feeling. We found out early that telling the truth makes people uncomfortable and is certainly not ladylike or likely to make us popular. So we learn to lie sweetly so we can be loved. And when we figure out this system, we're in a split. The public self who says the right things in order to belong and the secret self who thinks other things. Dr. Brene Brown says in her book, Rising Strong, loving and belonging are irreducible needs of all men, women, and children. We are hardwired for connection. It's what gives us purpose and meaning. The absence of belonging and connection always leads to suffering. It's cultivated when we understand the guidepost as choices and daily practices. All of our guests this month have found ways to engage their contacts, their clients, their patients, their friends, and their loved ones from a place of worthiness and compassion. Their shared stories reveal the fact that love does and love heals. My guest today brings the kind of love that does both heal wreckage as well as sustain life. Dr. Sarah A. John is sitting in the studio with me. And we've almost had a whole show just having a conversation, <laughs> getting ready to have a show. But you all know the drill. Each of my guests pretends that <laughs> she is a book in our human library. And she introduces herself in a way that makes us want to read more. So Sarah, at this time, why don't you tell us who you are, how you are, and how you got to be who you are in terms of a journey. That is a tall order, Tyra, <laughs> to do it in a few words. I am fine today, and I am fine. That is not a cover-up statement. Good. I'm happy to be here. 
and hope that maybe some of what has happened with me will help someone else along. I'm sure it will. I'm an emergency physician, but I don't do emergency medicine. I'm a mother and proud to be one, and I'm a grandmother. Oh, very happy to be a grandmother. In spite of the daily challenges that those roles entail. Yes. Um, I work in a very unconventional fashion, but I grew up with unconventional parents. Okay. And they never did teach me how to be nice and how to fit in, be superficially nice. But my mother didn't know how to tone herself down. She didn't know how to do hair or makeup or dress so that the other ladies in their shirtwaist dresses and their gloves Uh would think that she was acceptable. I remember being told that my friend Peggy Moon could no longer play with me. And I think I was in about third grade at the Uh time. uh Because her mother had discovered that, first of all, we were Jewish. Oh, my God. And that my mother, shh, was divorced. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And suddenly, I wasn't good enough for Peggy. Now, I didn't really understand that that's what was going on. I only knew that I had been told that she could no longer play with me. What did that feel like? It was horrible. Yeah. It was just horrible. You know, there weren't many kids my age on the block where we lived. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of girls, and she was one of them. Um, It was simply terrible, and I had played with her over and over and over until her mother learned who my family was. My mother was not a conventional woman. She was blacklisted by the House on American Activities Committee in 1951 because, as we found out when the Freedom of Information Act went in, she got her dossier in 1970-something, and it said that she had been overheard at a University of Chicago cocktail party Uh where she had gone because they had free food. She was told or overheard to say that women and blacks didn't have equal opportunity in America. That was 1951. Well, honey, we're here in 19... I'm sorry, 2019. There you go. 2019. There you go. And they can't pass an ERA that gives women equal rights in America. So how far have we come? Well, we've come a a ways, but it isn't nearly far enough. But because of that, Mm -hmm. my mother was blacklisted as a communist. And she was not able to work under her own name in Chicago, where I grew up, Mm -hmm. until... 1966, when the family moved to Los Angeles. We got so-called urban renewed out. That's another name for blockbusting. Right. But the home we lived in was a rental property, and it was no longer available, and my family moved to Los Angeles. My father was also not a conventional man. He was a scientist. He was a brilliant scientist. But in the early 60s, when the Cuban embargo went in, he refused to disband his research with Cuban scientists. Well, we had the FBI sitting outside of the house. They followed my brother to school, to his middle school. We were not what the neighborhood thought was normal. 
My mother was divorced multiple times and remarried. My father was divorced multiple times and remarried. We are a large family. I have eight siblings who I'm very close to. That's great news. But it is not your normal, let's put it on a family tree family. Mm -hmm. So I didn't grow up really knowing how to fit in to the families around us that were suburban families. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it was something wrong with me. And I went through high school feeling the same way. Now, the fact of the matter is I'm pretty smart. I went to a high school that was the University of Chicago's laboratory school. Now, we thought we were laboratory rats. We used to call ourselves lab rats or lab brats. Uh We were all smart. You got into the school by taking a test. And most of us were related to faculty members at the university, which is how we paid our tuition. Mm -hmm. It It was canceled for them. The other half of the school were people who came from families that were very well-to-do, and they could afford the tuition. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the tuition remission kids didn't fit in with them either. But all of us were smart. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, none of us really emerged thinking that we were anything but average. Gotcha. Because... Everyone around us was the same. Mm-hmm. So you didn't come out thinking, maybe I've got some talents and some abilities. That are special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to a good college. I went to Brandeis University. It was a wonderful place to be. But it was not a quiet place in the 60s. And I was there in the early 60s. Well, 1964 through 1968. Mm-hmm. The week I graduated, Bobby Kennedy was killed. start crying I'm so sorry it's very hard not to be emotional we had the Vietnam War we had the kids getting killed yes yes you know we had Martin getting killed yes and then just to hear after I got out two years after I got out we had the Kent State kids getting yes and it was a very difficult time And I didn't go to a school that was your average party school. I went to a school where we were in the streets. Absolutely. We were in the streets. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got to medical school, which was a roundabout story, um, that I started to feel like maybe I was actually quite competent and that I could do something in life. Now I want our audience, I'm putting a comma there. There's so many young people today on the journey of discovering and asking themselves every day, am I enough? And the message I hear you saying is, hey, I went through a lot. And I know the 60s as well. Um, I know the pain and the surprise uh, of assassinations, etc., and it was very confusing. We didn't have scripts that made sense because a lot of what was going on was the first time in generations to feel that. But I want people to understand, whoever you are right now, if you're listening to us, you're a survivor, yes. and you are a worthy person. 
So if it took up to medical school for Dr. Sarah to say, wow, maybe I do have it going on. Oh, it took much longer than that, Tyra. Okay. But at least there was the heartbreak of Jack Kennedy, my senior year of high school, Mm -hmm. and then all those heartbreaks through college and through into the 70s when, thank God, that final war was thought we were out of it. Yes. But it took that long for me not to feel like, and maybe not even long past that, but I went into medical school feeling very much like Someone out there was going to discover that I really wasn't good enough. You were imposter. Yes. yes. That's a very powerful, terrible thing that happens to children and to young women especially, even now in this generation. Yes. And I don't want girls coming up to ever believe that of themselves. It is not about your hair. It's not about your makeup it's not about the clothes or the shoes you wear it's about what's inside of you and what you do with it and you can do with it exactly what you dream of and don't ever let anyone tell you that you're not good enough or that that dream can't come true and i had my dreams taken away from me at one point as we'll we'll talk about yeah yeah and what what i think is um one it's important to to encourage people to dream. That's the first Absolutely. thing. And secondly, pursuing a dream does not guarantee it will be realized in the way that you think it might. And it's where I want you to go now based on what I know about you is you said right away, you know, I'm in emergency medicine, but, and there's a lot of things that you do, but, or I no, we should say Anne. I'm I'm not Anne, or I am Anne. So can you tell us yes. a little bit about that? Yes, I'm trained as an emergency physician. Okay, I'm board certified in emergency medicine, okay. and I love emergency medicine. I don't do emergency medicine. So talk and about this what it is. What is emergency? Emergency medicine is a specialty. It's the people you see when you go to a hospital emergency department. Okay. Occasionally, the hospital also has an urgent care, and they run that. But it's a, it's a specialty where we are trained to take care of critical care, trauma care. Yes. At the moment that it arrives at the hospital, mm-hmm. to intervene to stabilize that patient, mm-hmm. and then to get them to definitive care. Okay. But because emergency departments are also, as we like to say in the College of Emergency Physicians, We are the light that's always on. We are the light on the block. Mm -hmm. There is 24-7 somebody there who can offer you assistance, whether it's from a medical problem or an emotional problem. Mm -hmm. And we're trained to do it, and we're trained to find the resources that are there after that immediate intervention. Mm -hmm. We take care of people with colds and sore throats and earaches who have nowhere else to go. We take care of babies with fevers whose parents are frightened, Mm -hmm. and we take care of the people who are coming from the car crashes and the burning buildings. It's the whole gamut, but it's critical care medicine. It's not going to your family doctor and having your blood pressure taken. So I didn't train originally in emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. I happened upon it. Mm -hmm. 
I was trained as a pediatrician and as a pediatric hematologist. I took a year off because of some illness, and I fell in love with a man who was a wonderful man. I was not the right woman for him. But because of that, I moved south. Okay. And at the time I moved south, I couldn't find a position in my field. So as we say, I was snow white and I drifted into emergency medicine. <laughs> and it took. And I was happily pursuing a career in emergency medicine until. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you think your dreams are taken away. And sometimes your dreams find you. Good point. Very and good point. I was very fortunate. I don't think the disaster that happened to our family was fortunate, but I was fortunate that my dreams found me. I was injured in a car crash. I was in a restrained, of course I wear a seatbelt, and so shouldn't every one of your listeners every time they get in a vehicle. Okay. But I was wearing a seatbelt in the rear seat of a car, and we were hit by a drunk driver. I don't like happy hours. They put people who have been drinking into cars. Okay. But we were hit by a drunk driver, and I had a, what's called a minor traumatic brain injury. Well, I'm here to tell you, there's nothing minor about any brain injury, whether it's a concussion to a child playing soccer or it's somebody like me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up unable to do very much. I couldn't read. I couldn't drive. I couldn't make sense of things. I was angry. I didn't even know I was angry. Mm -hmm. I burned myself every time I tried to cook or I burned the food. And I really wasn't functional. And I was very, very lucky. There are wonderful healthcare providers in the world. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky. I found a neuro-ophthalmologist who could explain why I wasn't able to read or tell where the car was, whether I could move or not move. A wonderful neurosurgeon who took me seriously when I told her, I'm sorry I'm late to my follow-up appointment with you. I couldn't remember how to dial a phone. Did I dial the number or didn't I dial it? So I'd hang up and I'd start punching buttons again and get lost again. Mm -hmm. And she called my husband and said, come pick her up, she's not driving home. And she made referrals. I was very, very lucky. Eventually, I made my way to the Mount Vernon Bridge Program, an integrated neurologic rehab facility okay. that we're fortunate to have here in Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. And there are other ones around the country and other ones around the world. And I did years of physical therapy and balance training and occupational therapy, learning to pull that rack in and out of the oven. Can you imagine how stupid that felt? I but Yes. <laughs> you know what? I don't burn myself very often anymore because I remember to pull the rack out <laughs> instead of just reaching in the oven. I spent hours and hours and hours with behavioral neuropsychologists who did neurobiofeedback. I traveled to Minnesota to get that done with a wonderful, wonderful man, Dr. Nash. If you're still in business, thank you, thank you, thank you. He's in Edina, Minnesota. Um, Michael Sitar in Friendship Heights. I was very fortunate to have 
wonderful people who helped me. The director of the Bay Pines VA Hospital head injury unit in Florida. I got fabulous care and referrals. Thank you, Bob Thatcher. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to everyone who helped care for me. And at four and a half years after the crash, I was able to go back to work. Now, but, I want, I want, I, this, oh. But I couldn't go back to work in the ER. But I want, I want you just to stop because everything you said, you said referrals, you thanked individuals, and I immediately flipped to how favored you were to be able to enter into a healthcare system that allowed you to make the connections and in that way. I was so lucky. That's I amazing. Was so lucky. My father was director of the brain research, at the time that I was injured, was director of the Department of Brain Research Okay. in New York at NYU. And he had a friend, Bob Thatcher, who had originally been a postdoc with my father, who ran the Bay Pines Head Injury Unit. Connections. Connections. And he sent my records to Bob, and Bob looked at them. And I got some other referrals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and other people sent me to other people they knew. Bob Thatcher sent me to John Nash in Edina, Pencil or Edina Minnesota. And with one thing and another, I was extraordinarily fortunate to get what you needed, the, the interventions that I needed to be able to permit me to go back to reading, to be mm -hmm. able to think in a linear fashion yeah, again, yeah, yeah. to be able to drive a car. That was a wonderful man here in Woodbridge, Virginia, who does driver rehab mm -hmm. for people with head injuries. And I was extraordinarily lucky. And you were in a percentage that we can't even talk about zero no. zero zero there's so many people that are stuck in one of those places unable to do several of those things absolutely because and they can't afford here's it here's an don't. important important message okay about a year after my injury when I was still kind of in la-la land mm -hmm. um, I didn't make a lot of sense a lot of the times I would meander indefinitely not because I couldn't think, but because I was trying to pull the idea forward in my head mm -hmm. that I knew wasn't what I was trying to get out. About a year out, a clinical coordinator told me, well, Sarah, this is as good as you're ever going to get. That's what I'm talking so about. So what are you going to do with your life? And how many people hear that? They hear that rather than what you experienced. Now, she pulled the rug out from under my feet. Okay. She said, you're never going to see a patient again. Uh -huh. You're never going to practice medicine again. So here's the Department of Labor job book that lists all of the jobs that are out there. Mm -hmm. Look through it and see if you find something that you can go do. Yep. Well, I was devastated, absolutely devastated. Mm -hmm. Came home sobbing my heart out. But you know what? I come from a family of tough people. I can tell. My grandmother 
was the first in her little village in Hungary to go to college. And she went up in the Carpathian Mountains by herself without a chaperone as a single woman to teach chemistry. My mother, as you heard, fighting bigotry Mm -hmm. in 1951. She paid a price for it, but she never gave up. And you? Well, my father did the same thing against these people who think that because someone's your political enemy, they should become your personal enemy. Mm -hmm. Garbage. Mm -hmm. I'll try to be polite and not swear on your radio show. Yes. Well, I got angry. Okay. And I said, no, I'm not going to give up. And I kept fighting and kept accessing resources. One girl took me to get Reiki counseling. And they waved their hands over me, and they did whatever. I'm here to tell you it must have helped. I don't know that it didn't. Take every single thread of assistance that someone's offering because it will add up. So, no, I didn't go back to emergency medicine. After two-year reassessment with friends at Fairfax Mm -hmm. Hospital, They asked me, what do you think? And I said, I don't feel like I've got that real crisp edge to multitask 10 patients at once, which is the nature of ER. Right. I'm going to forget to check someone's EKG or read their x-ray or follow up on whether or not the orthopedist called back. And I just don't feel like inside my own head I am crisp enough. Mm -hmm. And they agreed with me. So what was I going to do? I got hired at a student union to be the student health doctor. It was very boring. (laughs) I'm here to be honest with you. It was very boring. Mm -hmm. But eventually, I went back to work. Now, I never worked in a conventional fashion. This is backtracking a little bit. Even in ER, I was that girl that just didn't know how to fit in. I wasn't a very good employee because I didn't tolerate nonsense very well. I was never going to fit in with all the nurses who wanted a pretty little sorority girl to be the doctor working with them because I didn't know how to be that person, much less actually be the person. I couldn't even pretend to be her. So I had had a career working in locum tenens. I was the fill-in doc for a hospital that didn't have enough staff. Mm-hmm. And I had been doing that as a career path. So I worked in eastern Kentucky for several years. I worked in western Kentucky. I worked in rural Maine. I worked in all kinds of really wonderful places mm-hmm. that I never would have experienced if I'd been that little girl who knew how to fit in. Well, when I recovered from the head injury and went back to work, the staffing agencies are still calling me because they knew that they were calling me all those years. And I ended up working on an Indian reservation at the bottom of the Grand Canyon in Arizona. I work with a tribe nobody's ever heard of, but I love them dearly, my Havasupai tribe. Say say that again. Havasupai, H-A-V-A-S-U-P-A-I. The Havasupai tribe is a very small tribe. It's about 1,500 tribe members. Okay. About half of them live in Supai, Arizona, 
which is their village at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Wow. Yes. Okay, Sarah, first of all, I'm, I'm very visual. How do you get to them? <laughs> well, I fly to Las Vegas. We drive four hours to Hualapai Hilltop, which is on the Hualapai Reservation. Okay. Another tribe most people don't know of. Okay. And I have a choice. I can hike eight and a half miles downhill. I did it once. I'll never do it again. Uh-huh. I could ride a horse or a mule. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know how to do that. Or I can take a helicopter. I was wondering, yeah. So okay. I take a helicopter for a 12-minute ride, and they drop me into the village. Okay, now, drop us. I want, you know, I want radio to become uh, a picture now. Drop us into the tribe. We are with you. Okay, I get off that helicopter. Okay. And I am in what we call downtown Supai. Okay. Downtown Supai has a tribal building, mm-hmm. office building. Mm-hmm. It's a one-story very beautiful, spread out, sort of stone-covered ranch building. Mm-hmm. There is a basketball court with a patio. Okay. There is an elementary school. There's a trading post, which is about the size of your average 7-Eleven. Okay. And there's a little cafe. And there's a head start. And there's a tourist office. And that is downtown Supai. There is no grocery store. There is no bookstore. There's often no internet service. There is often no telephone service unless you go to the particular place in the village where your phone can pick it up. Okay. And there is quite often no television unless somebody up on that plateau that I took the helicopter from Uh and four hours drive away remembered to pay the direct TV bill. It's very isolated. It's very remote. Okay, so, all right, I got it. I, I got downtown, so I'm guessing as I go out to where people are sleeping. There are about 700, between 600 and 700 tribe members okay. who live in the canyon permanently. Okay. The others live up top, as we call it. They live up top in Grand Canyon Camp, which is a community they have. Mm. Or some of them live in Kingman, Arizona, or Las Vegas, or L.A. Okay. But most of the tribe lives in either Grand Canyon Camp or down in Supai. And the folks sometimes trade back and forth. There are small ranch houses. Okay. They're brown wood. They are um, two or three bedrooms, small ranch houses mm-hmm. that often are occupied by 10 or 15 people. Okay. There are fields that have gardens and corn and squash. So and that's how they're getting groceries. They're growing. Or, or they go out to Kingman, Arizona. They either take that same hike uh-huh. or m- mule up to a car or truck. Okay. Or they take the helicopter up. Okay. And they drive into Kingman, Arizona, and they shop at the grocery store. And would they shop for the two or three families? Or I'm just thinking of... It depends. Okay. Maybe they're shopping just for their own own self, maybe they're shopping for their family, or maybe they're shopping for somebody else who said, hey, can you pick up okay. these okay. things? Because the trading post, because they have to import everything right, and pay cargo prices or mail prices. It's expensive. It's expensive. Right. You know, you can buy a gallon of milk at 7-Eleven, but it's much cheaper at Aldi or Safeway right. or West Lawn or the Korean groceries, the places right. that we shop. Now I'm, I'm I going buy to my t- groceries in Kingman, Arizona for two weeks, 
and they come with me. So that now you're getting to what I want to know. Okay, so you are the doctor. I'm it. Okay, now I want to know how frequently you go. I want to know what kind of services you render. What do they need most? And um, okay, well, um, I work for the as a contractor mm-hmm. through a staffing agency for the Indian Health Service. Okay, okay, and there is one doctor and one nurse for that tribe in that location. We're it. Okay. We are all things to all comers. We handle the emergencies, but we also handle the average everyday illnesses. Okay. So I may be dealing with a tribe member who's had a stroke or who thinks they're having a heart attack, or I may be dealing with a two-month-old who's come in for their two-month-well baby check and to get their shots. Okay. Most of what we do on a daily basis is average everyday medical care like you would get at your family doctor's. So, but, but, but now you're in the studio with me, and they're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. That's right. When do you go? Well, I will be going back to Supai May 30th. Oh. I will be there until June 12th, and then I will go back again. We tr- the doctors trade every two weeks, and I gotcha. there are four or five of us who trade out. Okay. Okay, I believe Dr. Skinner is in there right now, or possibly Dr. Cook. Okay. We come from all over. There's a doctor from Florida. There are two doctors from Arizona. There's somebody from California. So they have year-round medical care. Yes, they do. On rotation. On rotation. They do not have a permanent doctor. They need one. Okay. But because of the isolation, it's, I've been going there for five years. Okay. There were a group of doctors who were trading a month at a time for about three years before I started, and then they got tired and didn't renew their contracts. The nurse trades every 13 weeks, and the nurses are also travelers because they don't have a permanent nurse. Okay. We had a permanent nurse for about two years. She's now with the VA in Chincoteague. Okay. I love my current nurse. I wish he was going to be permanent, Marlon Caballero, who's wonderful, but he's probably going to go do international nursing in September, unfortunately. So, yes, they have one doctor and one nurse for all of the tribe members. We're on call 24-7 for the two-week period that I'm there, the nurse for the 13 weeks that they're there, and then we trade, and the next doctor's on 24-7. We have regular office hours, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. The rest of the time, we're on call. And okay, so now here I am. I'm in one of my, one of the three-bedroom houses with 12 other people, mm-hmm. and suddenly I have these pains, and and I, I'm nauseous, and, and I don't know what to do. I'm disoriented, and... How do they get me to you, and what happens? Well, there's no ambulance, as you can imagine. Okay. Um, most of the time, family member is going to bring you to the clinic. Okay. If it's after hours, they may call the police, okay. BIA, tribal police, mm-hmm. who will um, call the doctor, and we'll tell them they have to, have to come to the, mm-hmm. the clinic. We don't usually go pick people up at their homes. If we think it's a life-threatening emergency and our... Kubota happens to be working, mm-hmm. we'll try to go get them and bring them to the clinic. And then the problem really begins. Because okay, what if, what you're if likely to have a heart attack. Right, so what do you do so then? So 
I have to get you to a hospital. Okay, how do you do that? I call a helicopter. Okay. There are five helicopter services. I know which ones come from where and what their response time is. Sometimes they won't come because it's too dark or it's too windy or too rainy or it's too foggy at the destination. But we do our very best to get Mm -hmm. you to a hospital. Mm -hmm. Or we sit with you all night long until the rain stops and the fog clears and the sun comes out, if we're lucky. Mm -hmm. And one way or another, we get you to a hospital, to an emergency department, where somebody who does does the job that I used to do. Got it. Yeah. We'll stabilize you and take care of you. My job is to stabilize you until I can get you, you there. there. Now, now here's, you know, you can it's tell. It's a very difficult place for people to live. Yes. And they choose to live there because they feel that it is their tribal home. Okay. And they want to live in their tribal community. So the other, the other thing that's in my head, you know how, okay, we know that our children get immunized because certain childhood diseases exist. We know that certain things happen with young women at certain times. What kinds of things are, I don't know, cultural, tribal, what are the most frequently, uh, what are the most frequent treatments that you uh, deliver? Well, of course, we do all of the well-child care, all of okay. those immunizations. Okay. Um, the only thing that we weren't able to do the last time I was down there was uh, the pediatric varicella because the vaccine was back-ordered. Okay. And so they had to go somewhere up top to get the vaccine, but I believe that that's been corrected. But we do all of the normal physicals and well-child care and um, young women who you know, have their various problems. Mm -hmm. Um, If somebody's pregnant, they do have to go to Kingman, Arizona for their obstetrical care. That's what I want. We used to do it, but the person who did the obstetrics, um, the prenatal care, if you will, Uh um, she retired, and now all prenatal care has to go to Kingman, Arizona. Okay. And the tribe knows that. Um, Most of what we see is routine illness. Um, Of course, we see all of the usual high blood pressures and Mm -hmm. um, stomach aches and diarrheas and all of those types of everyday intercurrent illnesses, we call them. Okay. Unfortunately, a very large number of my tribe members have diabetes. So we are doing very severe, very complicated diabetic care. It's commonplace for my tribe members to be on metformin and sometimes two or three insulins. Is it generational? Is it dietary? What, what, what? That's all been investigated, and nobody really is quite certain why oh. so many of our tribe have diabetes. Okay. But they do. So we do a lot of diabetic care. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a podiatrist who comes in every three months to do diabetic foot care. Mm-hmm. We have an ophthalm- ophthalmologist and an optician, um, optometrist, who come in every three months. There are dentists who rotate in mm-hmm. and they have their own dental clinic attached to our clinic. Okay. We have telemedicine for routine cardiology, but Good. not a lot of telemedicine. Now, okay, so uh, when you said telemedicine, I'm, I'm referring back to my notes about what's not available. So how you do telemedicine? Well, they have, they have a um, online 
oh, okay. a computerized system I got you. for doing a face-to-face video visit with okay. the cardiologist. Right. I have nothing to do with that, and I can't edge. I'm so technologically challenged. I can't even tell you how it's really set up. But the bottom line is you can save but lives, it's available. so I think that's okay. It's available. Okay. And we do our best. And unfortunately, there's a lot of domestic violence and a lot of alcoholism, just like in, unfortunately, every community in America, whether it's Fairfax City or it is Supai, Arizona. That's unfortunately part of American life that I wish wasn't there. So we care for that. I do some injury care, of course. Yes. And then there are the packers who bring our supplies in and out. They get injured falling off their horses or loading a pack. They need suturing. They need splinting of, you know, sprains and broken bones and those types of things. If we think they need x-rays, they go out to to um, Peach Springs, Arizona, where there is an Indian health clinic, mm-hmm. and they get their x-rays done. And if they need to see orthopedics, they get referred on. But we do all that type of normal injury care. Now, I ask you, as I do most of my guests when we're doing the This Is Us theme, and I said, Sarah, if you had to write a headline and name uh, the episode that we're going to uh, do today, what would it be? And Miss Sarah said, I would choose what are you doing for others? Now, I ask you, listeners, do you think she's true to her headline? And I'm going to transition now to something else. The answer for me is yes. The answer for her, I don't know. She's shaking her head and I'm ignoring her. But I want you to take four minutes and tell us what else you do that you got me involved in in Haiti. Yes. Remember I said sometimes it's not about your dreams They follow you. They find you. Sometimes your (laughs) dreams, the dream finds you. Yes. Now, as I said, I come from a family of, um, what shall we say, firebrands. Out of the box. They are out of the box, and they are politically active. They always have been. My brother was 10 years old. He was holding a strike, a picket line with two of his friends in front of the toy store on 97th and 2nd Avenue in New York because they sold toy guns, and he didn't think they should sell them. So he stood in front of them with a picket line. Okay, so I'm also politically active. Yes, you are. And a group called the Brigades that grew out of the Jim Webb campaign, Mm Mm-hmm. We were his boots on the ground, his okay. brigades. Okay. Those volunteers stuck together. Okay. And two days after the Haitian earthquake, Antoine Cornette showed up. He's a pediatric psychiatrist in mm-hmm. northern Virginia. Showed up to ask us if we could help him gather supplies for victims of the earthquake because he knew that the children would be out of school for three two or three years, Yes, and he didn't want them to run wild in the streets. So he asked us to help gather school supplies and bedding materials for the tent cities that were springing up. Yes. And my father had always wanted me to join Doctors Without Borders, and I never had the courage. But 
I gave my card to Antoine. I said, I can't go with you today. I'm in the middle of a job. Mm -hmm. But the next time someone's going to Haiti, call me. So five weeks later, I get this phone call. This is Yves Francois. Welcome to Chantal. And I'm going, who the hell are you? And where is Chantal? Well, he is now my, my spiritual brother. Father Eve is a priest in Okeechobee, Florida. He's the pastor of Sacred Heart Catholic Church. And three weeks after he phoned me, I was in Chantal, Haiti, with one other doctor from Florida, and we were treating quake refugees. Okay. People who had fled Port-au-Prince and come to Chantal. Mm-hmm. And there were 2,000 extra people who needed care. The, the village doubled its size overnight, as did many, many, many villages in Haiti. Mm-hmm. People who had nowhere to go in Port-au-Prince went to the hinterlands. And the Haitian government, being overwhelmed with groups of wannabe helpers, said, go to those villages. We've got too many people in Port-au-Prince. So here comes Yves-Francois, and he says, welcome to Chantal. So I went to Chantal. And how many years have you been going? Since the earthquake in 2010. Since shortly after the earthquake. And I, it is my happy place. Sometimes your dreams find you. Yes, I hear and you. And so I was one... I was the second doctor. Bill McGarry was the first who went with, with Eve the day after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. And we now have a team of 35 to 40 people. We've had 18 mission trips, medical mission trips to Chantal to provide respite to the wonderful nuns who run the dispensary there. Now, I'm Jewish. I don't proselytize for the Catholics. But I want all of your listeners who have medical training, or who have a yen to help, lay people as well. Get my information and come to Chantal. Do, do it now. We Give care, them how to do it. We care you. to share Chantal. Okay, we care to share Chantal. You'll find it on the web okay. or on Facebook, or better yet, just come to my website, Come to my email, sarahjohn2857 at gmail, and we Sarah will take John you with us to Haiti. 2857 at gmail. Yes. And she's not kidding you. We were having a conversation, and I thought that's all we were having, and all of a sudden I'm saving up now for airfare uh, to go in January. And January 16th through 26, <laughs> 2020 is the next trip. We will be, there will be those of us who will be jumping down there in between, but that will be the next large team. And so I met Tyra by asking that her Rotary Club partner with us on a grant. Our new, we've done now five previous very successful grants to take care of sanitation needs and medical needs and energy needs, all kinds of different needs in Chantal, Haiti. And this year, we will be building a mu- music classroom and a youth center for the youth of Chantal so that they can develop their talents. They have nowhere to go after school. So we are going to build a youth center where they can have dance teams and music instruction and soccer teams to join a soccer league and where they can explore their world 
Last year, we put in a STEM classroom so that they could come and do science and computer work after school with an intranet because there's no, no internet. Inter- right, no so Wi-Fi. So we built right. them an intranet with the help of Bethel Church in Warrenton's educa- Computers for Education. Sometimes your dreams find you, and then other connections show up. And I, several things. Okay, we've got nuns. We've got a thousand kids. We've got a school. We did classrooms and science. Now we're about to do dance and art and medical missions, 12. Uh, Sarah's been there since 2010 after or soon after the earthquake. And what we're saying, we cannot do a call to action, but what we can say is if you want to continue the conversation about how to help, okay, um, just go to Sarah's website. Say one more time for me. SarahJohn2857 at Gmail, or we care to share Chantal, and that's C-H-A-N-T-A-L. Now, if I hadn't been injured in that car crash. That's okay. We're getting there. And what I'm, I'm concerned about in hurrying, mm-hmm. yes, this is Tyra hurrying, I want Sarah to have enough time to read her letter to herself, and oh, we're running out of time. Oh, I will, very quickly. But uh, the, the real lesson is that when one door closes, another one opens. Amen. And don't ever close those doors for yourself. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to turn it over to you. I want you, oh I know you are, I want you to tell us a story about through your letter to your younger self. Well, we'll see if I can get through this without, without breaking up. Dear Andy, my family always called me Andy because my middle name's Andre. Dear Andy, I'm so proud of you. You will discover that you have amazing strength, energy, persistence, and intelligence, and they will be applied in good ways you can't imagine now. The world is full of amazing places and people And you'll have the privilege of experiencing in depth those places and those people. And I'm so excited that you have that ahead of you, enriching your future. Be of good cheer. Don't let others define you. Your definition of yourself is just fine. There will be disappointments, serious challenges, heartbreaking losses. But you will come out of the other side with a life of fulfillment and personal riches. That's not money, by the way. Perhaps you won't lead a conventional and normal life, as it turns out. But then again, your parents aren't suburban norms either. So be of good faith. They gave you the tools you will need. Try not to be in a rush to find a niche. It will find you. You will do good things for good people and have fun doing them. Those age-old platitudes like when the tough gets is when the going is tough, the tough gets going. Annoying though they are, they have some wisdom in them. And you will learn that you don't fit into round holes. Be a proud square peg. You've been accused of being a Pollyanna. Well, in my opinion, she was badly maligned. After all, enjoying a rainy day is an opportunity to read a good book. And that's much better than seeing it as a day filled with gloom. We are tasked with Takuna Lam, repairing an imperfect world. Well, there are terrible imperfections. 
and they are all opportunities to create change. Your family has a proud history of working for positive change, and you will as well. Heed Aunt Molly's words, life has to get shitty awful to get better. Her even better wisdom is, life is uncertain, and ice cream is proof that God loves us. Whether a licorice sundae at mar- with marshmallow at Mary Bell's, or coffee with hot butterscotch and almonds at Schraff's, or chocolate and coffee at home with homemade hot fudge like mom's, the possibilities are endless. Enjoy the sweetness that will come your way. You will discover that the only lesson in life worth learning is not neuroanatomy. While Dr. Bergman may have seemed so disapproving with his ever hear of it, His gruffness was his way of truly caring for all of his students to help them become the best possible physicians rather than merely doctors. You will be blessed with many wonderful mentors, from Ilya Podendorf and Alice Strever to Grant Lafarge and Randy Ellis. The lesson is always kindness and love, so be loving of yourself and your life. And Daddy was right. Every day's a gift. Love your older self. Well, that's love coming out to you. From Dr. Sarah A. John, you've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. on Radio Fairfax. I want to leave you in these last few seconds with a couple of reminders. You are worthy. What happens to you is quite different from who you are. You are never alone, and your seat at this table is guaranteed. This is Tyra G. I love you.